How can children in foster care feel secure? I think because children don't realise the amount of power that they should be having in their own decision-making, and they don't realise the amount of agency they can have over their own lives, it makes them feel very helpless and it makes them not want to try and connect with all of these adults who have all of these best intentions for them but, you know, aren't actually listening well. Today on Feed, Play, Love, one mum who grew up in care gives us her insights on how to give foster kids a sense of safety and agency. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. Billy Black is an artist who grew up in care and she's a mum of two. Having experienced the powerlessness as a child growing up in out-of-home care, Billy wants to see kids have a greater say in what happens in their lives. Her book, Raw, is a way of explaining to children that they have a voice that needs to be heard. Billy, welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Thank you for having me. How old were you when you were first placed in out-of-home care? Uh, I had a very unusual situation. I was in informal care slash homeless, uh, you know, a quite early teens slash maybe even before my teens. There's a bit of a grey area of my early life that I'm not exactly sure who I was living with when, but uh, let's say from about 12, I wasn't living with my birth parents anymore. What kind of environment was that? Was it with a foster family? How did it work? No, I wasn't in traditional foster care. I ended up being in a few different programs for various things during that time while they were sort of trying to find a foster care placement for me. So this might have been like hospital programs. I was in essentially an adult mental hospital in a unit there for a little while, which is completely inappropriate. But they said essentially it's either that or a jail cell. We certainly don't want to put you in a jail cell. Holy moly. So, um, What a choice for a 12-year-old. Well, this is sort of the state of the industry back then. You know, in terms of the department, the kind of supports that they had weren't um, as best practice as they are now. In the end... They ended up finding a refuge for me to stay at for a while. I was too young to be at that refuge. You were supposed to be at least 14. But I ended up staying there for two and a half years, I think, instead of the maximum, which was six months at the time. But it was just because there was no other bed in Sydney for me to go to. Wow. So you were a 12-year-old, a tween going on a teen. Yes, I might have managed to turn 13 quite early in this story, but yeah, I think I would have been 12 or 13. And were you in that refuge on your own? Well, no, with lots of other teenagers as well. No, I mean like no one else from your family. Oh, no. Yes, no, no one else from my family. Well, in the refuges, they sort of try to keep it quite safe. So you're not really supposed to tell anybody what the address is or have visitors or anything like that. Yeah, wow. That sounds incredibly isolating and lonely. Like, I think that, um, you know, the thing that I'm trying to get out with this book and with the work that I do with other young people is um, because it's always a thing of children not knowing what their rights are, not knowing what they can ask for. I mean, 
I think that was a particularly intense experience that we hope that most children won't have to go to. But when I went to this refuge, you know, there were bars on the windows and I sort of had the idea as well because somebody had uh, suggested that maybe I need to be in a prison cell while we look for somewhere (laughs) for me to live. I kind of had the idea that this was, you know, for wayward teens, it's not prison, but it's the place that you go to so that you don't go to prison. So I think I thought it was some sort of jail-connected program or something. And in retrospect, no, it certainly wasn't. It was supposed to be like a safe home for teenagers um, temporarily while you look for foster care or while you look for a more permanent option. So during that period, during Mm. that two and a half years, Mm. did you have any consistency in adult care, responsibility? Uh, No, since you mention it, I think... um, This is probably why we have this as a sort of last resort for children to be in group homes or to be in refuges is because the staff are essentially just rostered on. So I had a different adult every half a day and that would have been out of a pool of, I suppose, 10 adults. And so you have the same people again and again, but you only have them half a day at a time. And one of them will usually be your caseworker. But then the pool of caseworkers comes and goes a lot as well. Mm -hmm. It's a very uh, high turnover for caseworkers. Caseworkers uh, burn out very, very quickly with the amount of work and the amount of sort of emotionally taxing work that they have to do, as well as the incredible bureaucracy that they have to go through um, just to get to those children that they need to see. So every time there was a new caseworker, the children kind of get divvied up to, you know, include the new caseworker as well. So uh, you end up having a system back then, this is 20 years ago, mind, that I think I had a new caseworker every month approximately, and those were only the ones that I did meet because there were several times that I got a call saying, oh, hello, I'm your new caseworker, I'm taking over for, I don't know, Katie. And I was, oh, yeah, who's Katie? <laughs> oh. Never met never met her, never heard of her. Um, so I think, you know, that happened a lot and there was a huge turnover of, ca- turnover of caseworkers. Uh, nowadays, it's very, very different, the system, in that when you have a caseworker, you have to see them every month. They come and visit you and really check to make sure that everything's going on. They don't assume that if they haven't heard from you that no news is good news. But also those workers are staying in those positions longer because the caseworkers now have less caseload. And there's been times previously where I've um, spoken to a group of caseworkers about how to engage young people in their case plans and um, had one incredibly enthusiastic caseworker come and tell me, oh, look, Billy, I would love to just incorporate everything that you've said today into my, uh, you know, chats with the young people that I get to see. But I worked out the other day that if I only ever saw young people and didn't have to do any of the paperwork and I didn't have to make any calls and go into the office or do anything, just visited the young people, I would see each of my kids once every two months just to travel to their places and see them. That would be it because I have 100 kids in my my caseload. Wow. Wow. Which is really, really crazy. And it is quite different now because now 20 years later, I think caseworkers tend to have, you know, 10, 
maybe 20. It sort of depends on what area, what your CSC is, um, you know, what kind of uh, supports there are in the area that you're living in. But certainly in Sydney, it's a lot better. What exactly is a caseworker meant to do? It's so funny that you ask that because I only ever asked that once I stopped having one. (laughs) Um, It's an important thing to think about because, like I said, when I went to a refuge, I didn't know what a refuge was. And I was told I had this caseworker. I didn't know what a caseworker was. No one sat down and said, you know, so here's what a caseworker does. Here's what my job is. I suppose that the short version of what a caseworker does is that they're essentially sort of a liaison between all of the members of the care team and the child who's in care to make sure that all of the child's needs are being met by all of the different people who should be meeting those needs. So for instance, if you have a case plan for a child that they're struggling with maths, so they need a maths tutor. They also need to attend OT sessions um, and they also have to see their siblings uh, once a month for an hour and it has to be supervised. The caseworker's job essentially is to list all of those things, arrange all of those things, make sure that the child is able to get to see their family. Uh, They might supervise the contact They might check in with the birth family and see how they're going with um, uh, repairing through those issues that they need to repair, check that everything's going okay with the foster care placement, uh, and check that all the child's needs are being met. So what was your caseworker, multiple caseworkers, Mm. what were they doing? Well, (laughs) I suppose that really what that was about was... They were making sure that I was going to school. Uh-huh. I wasn't always, and they didn't know that I wasn't always going <laughs> to school. They were making sure that I had an annual checkup, I suppose, at a doctor, something like that. I mean, I don't really know because I never sort of interviewed them about what their job was and whether they were doing it properly or at all. I and mean, you, you also didn't know you could ask them for stuff. I didn't know that I could ask them for these things. When I was in the refuge when I first moved in, there was big fridge there full of food. I didn't know if I was allowed to help myself to it. That's a really common one, actually. Children don't know if they're allowed to help themselves to what's in the fridge. After a week or so, I kind of said next to uh, my caseworker, I sort of just casually mentioned like, yeah, I might need um, a hand working out where the nearest shops are or something because I don't have any uh, soap or deodorant or anything to have a shower with and it's been a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and she just sort of went, oh, you haven't been given, oh, we've got a whole cupboard full of all of that stuff. You don't need to buy any of that stuff. That's all here. And if you run out, just help yourself to it. I'm like, okay, if you say so. But, you know, I can't just, uh, you know, as a 13-year-old, I can't just go over to a caseworker and say, can I have a bunch of free things? You know, I don't know you, but can I have uh, a whole bunch of things for free? Mm. You know, that's not something that uh, we're taught to do as young children and teenagers. So uh, I just sort of 
waited to be offered. <laughs> wow. So what would you have asked for, if looking back now, if you'd known you could ask for things? Well, if I had my current knowledge of what I was allowed to ask for, I would have asked not to have birth family contact with a few certain people. But I did not know that that was an option, certainly. I would have asked to continue my violin lessons because I had been learning violin before I moved into the refuge. I suppose I would have asked for more time at school, like after school, to be able to uh, do my once once I worked this out later when I was sort of 17 or something, they were like, oh, that's fun. If you want to stay an hour after school just to do all your homework at school so that you don't bring it home, that's fine. I would have asked for padlocks on my things, which only got stolen once in a blue moon. That is, that's actually quite rare because, you know, all of the other children in your situation are in the same situation as you, but it did happen occasionally. So it would have definitely made me feel more secure to have that kind of thing. Um, I could have asked for a backpacks, textbooks, uh, you know, stationery, all of those things that you want for school that I had kind of just resorted to borrowing permanently off my friends and things like that. So uh, two and a half years in that refuge, mm. you would still have been underage. What happened at the end of those two and a half years? Oh, well, that was just my first refuge. So wow. after that, another refuge that had uh, space. Um, so I think I moved all over Sydney, basically wherever had space open. I ended up in a semi-independent placement, which has a few teenagers living under a roof with a quote-unquote caretaker who lives in a shed sort of next door and just makes sure you don't do anything dangerous and... Um, can be called on when you don't know how to operate the washing machine and things like that. Um, but yeah, after that, I think I was just working out, you know, my own Centrelink income. Yeah. So you're able to be on Centrelink from quite a young age if it's considered to be unreasonable for you to live at home. So sort of working out just the budgeting behind that and working out how to pay your bills and groceries as well as trying to finish high school. Were you able to stay at the same school? Oh, no. No, I went to about eight or nine different high schools. Wow. <laughs> There's like no stability at all in that really what are formative years. Well, I think a lot of well-intentioned adults sort of arranged for me to change schools when they move across Sydney. They're thinking, oh, well, you don't want to be on a bus for two hours. And that's possibly true for some children and for some children, you know, it's not true. So I think that's another thing that we often forget to ask the child because, you know, when caseworkers are thinking about the different things that need to go into case plan, they're thinking about the best interests of the child. And unfortunately, I feel like this often still happens without asking the child because we're worried that this is a difficult conversation. Sometimes we're worried about having conversations with children about why they're in care. Um, sometimes that can mean having conversations about addiction, about drug use, um, about mental health issues or mental illness. Uh, and these things, 
I can see a lot of adults are worried about bringing up with children for fear of sort of upsetting them, disturbing them, giving them miserable viewpoint of their own parents um, and loved ones, seeing their loved ones in a negative light. But at the same time, I think information is power and there is no age-appropriate information. There's only age-appropriate language for that information. So, you know, sometimes I think we do need to talk to children about why they're in care, what drug addiction is for, as to use an example, a common example, and, you know, and what needs to be done in order for the child to feel the safest and explain to the child that all of this is happening because everyone really cares about the child's safety and everybody really wants the child to feel safe where they're living. Because I think if we kind of frame it that way, and repeat it many, many times, that can help avoid this issue that we see always with children in care where they are just constantly, constantly, consistently blaming themselves for their situation. And That's what I was thinking when you said that. If you don't explain why, I mean, you were just explaining Mm. the simple misunderstandings that can happen when you're placed in a care centre and not told you have access to food in the fridge. (laughs) Yeah. If you make that assumption, that's only a small assumption that could have left you starving for (laughs) weeks. But not to explain why you're there in the first place seems to be, Mm. could be quite devastating for a child. Well, yeah. I mean, children just sort of make up the story that suits them the best. And for a lot of children, it's, you know, oh, well, I turned up with a lot of bruises at school, but I didn't lie. I know my parents would have wanted me to lie and I didn't lie. And so that's why me and my baby brother are both in care now. And it's my fault that he doesn't have access to mum and dad anymore. Children blame themselves just constantly for this uh, to the point where even when I was working um, with systems advocacy and speaking to so many other young people in care, that there was this common thing of, you know, well, it's never a child's fault that they're in care. Well, I mean, kind of, except in my particular situation, it was kind of my fault. But it's never a child's fault, you know, maybe, except in except in my case. Mm. And that was so often said that I realised quickly that that is the norm because I said the same thing. I was just like, well, in my case, it's a little bit different. But everybody also thinks that they don't have that they they don't really count as a foster child because they lived with their grandma for so long or they don't count as a foster child because they were only in care for a short amount of time or for a really long amount of time they were born into care so they don't count as a foster child and every child thinks that they don't count and also that, you know, everything that's happening is sort of their fault. And Double whammy. I think it happens so often that the big catalyst of these sort of misperceptions from children is just a lack of information. And like I said, information is power and you can really give a child so much power by giving them that information. I say at the end of my book that there was this caseworker who said to me, you know, oh, the next place that you're going to, you'll have a different caseworker and you'll have different adults there. If you really can't stand what's happening, just tell them, I don't feel safe and everyone will just drop what they're doing and listen to you. Like, I know, because I'm a caseworker, that uh, if you don't, if you say, I don't feel safe, everyone will just go, oh, 
<laughs> oh, that's uh, you know that's the that's the key word of the case plan, and so I ended up, you know, experimenting with that over the course of my first week. Well, I don't feel safe to sleep in here because I don't have you know a lock on the door, and they brought out a locksmith and gave a lock on my door, and I'm just like, okay, well, fair enough then. You know, I haven't actually had that in every single refuge I've been in, but, you know, I guess that's handy to have. And then I decided that I wasn't going to feel safe unless I could get out of mopping the floors because mopping the floors made me feel unsafe. But actually, even though I said that, and I think probably adults understood that, you know, I was being a smart mouth. <laughs> but, you know, my caseworker was just like, you know, okay, if mopping floors makes you feel unsafe, what other chore would make you feel more safe? And, you know, negotiated with me. And, you know, this phrase really had such a life-changing impact because whether it would work for, you know, changing my chores or whether it would work for getting me to stay at the same school, which it actually did. I said I wouldn't feel safe if I changed schools and they let me stay at the same school. Suddenly I realized, wait, could I have just chosen to stay at my school all of these other times that I had to change? Wow. If I had just asked, but nobody sort of told me what I could or couldn't ask for. After that, I became so cooperative in the eyes of adults but in my eyes adults became cooperative to me (laughs) (laughs) yes because suddenly you know with a when you have a child who's saying like oh well I want to do this after school extracurricular thing and it's really expensive can I do it you know I want to go on this camp I want to go on this school excursion it needs a guardian signature you're not my guardian but my guardian and I are not in contact with each other is that possible And all of these things that I had kind of just assumed I wouldn't be able to do, I suddenly was able to do. I hear stories like this all the time from foster kids who are like, oh, well, um, I wish I could have kept up with soccer, but I don't have shoes anymore. So is that it? No, you can can ask your foster carer, you can ask your caseworker just to get you some shoes. There's, they definitely have funds in the budget for (laughs) your soccer shoes, but a lot of children don't realise you know, what they don't know. They don't realise what they can ask for. It sounds like a lot of those things that you eventually did ask for, Mm. whether it, or other children, whether it be soccer shoes to keep playing soccer Mm. or to stay at the same school, Mm. actually the flow on effect of that sounds like it could be more permanent connections with other humans, which we are all driven to connect with other humans. But if you're a child that's being moved around, and you have no agency anywhere to stay. Mm. But it sounds like perhaps when you started asking for these things, the flow on effect could be more connection. Did you find that? Absolutely. And I think that children, you know, aren't incentivized to make these connections with strangers. And we forget a lot that we are asking children to put an enormous amount of trust in complete strangers that haven't, you know, given them the time of day before yesterday when they met them. But in terms of like having to build up that rapport over such a long period of time, you know, we often just don't have the time to be able to do all of that before we might have a child that wants to sabotage this placement because it's too far away from their brother or 
that, uh, you know, something will be going wrong at school and there are all of these things that can kind of get in the way. And I think because children don't realise the amount of power that they should be having in their own decision-making and they don't realise the amount of agency they can have over their own lives, it makes them feel very helpless and it makes them not want to try and connect with all of these adults who have all of these best intentions for them but, you know, aren't actually listening well. The thing that I always say is if a child, you know, is abusing their power to say, oh, I don't feel safe, I want an extra jelly cup, <laughs> you know, the if we take that seriously then it shows the child that we really care about whether they feel safe or not. And, you know, we can't always do every single thing that a child asks for, but we can always take that seriously. We can always listen and we can always talk about what are some other ways that we could help make their situation feel safer, but also more comfortable, more familiar. What about... um connections with people your own age though as well because once you have those soccer shoes you can keep up that friendship with that person that you met at soccer or once you stay at that school you can form friendships that you know are going to last beyond the next semester. Absolutely I mean you know (laughs) there's pros and cons to every situation. I know that certainly moving around so many high schools when I was a teenager gave me a good ability to get along with new people, you know, that's, uh, that's the silver lining to my own experience of it. But then, um, yeah, the other side of that is that maybe there are lots of lifelong friends that I maybe don't, uh, get to enjoy now. Although there are friends that I've had since I was extremely, extremely young that I actually sort of think of as siblings, basically, that I've managed to stick with me through moving all over Sydney. Um, And that is because someone had the genius idea very early on in my experience of care to ask me if there was anyone other than birth family that I needed to have contact with. And I was able to name them, but most children don't get asked that, unfortunately. Oh, that's such a shame. You started advocating for change in the system Mm. at 15 Mm. and you're still advocating for children now. Mm. Do you see things changing or does it feel like you're trying to move a mountain? I think similar to, you know, watching your own children change, you can't believe how little they change and how much they change, you know? Mm. I think that the system still has so many flaws, so many vulnerabilities, and it feels like the same flaws and vulnerabilities in that all of the rules are being written by people who are incentivized to manage difficult families rather than support the unsupported and empower the powerless, you know? It feels like all of those rules are being made top-down rather than from frontline workers who have a lot of compassion and can really see right in front of their eyes, uh, the issues that so many families are dealing with, um, which often just boils down to essentially bad luck to not have the right supports in the right place at the right time. But at the same time, the amount of change is so significant and is so positive that there are stories that I can tell now about my early teenagerhood that are unimaginable today that 
it would be crazy to have that many caseworkers in such a short amount of time. I think sometimes I start saying a story and I think, ooh, is that really what happened? I mean, it is, <laughs> but I, but you could never, ha- you could never have something like that happen now. But um, yeah, there's so many different stories as well because I was right in the centre of you know Sydney city. I was living in the CBD for a long time. I had access to all of these supports that were chopping and changing constantly. Someone who lives rural will have a very different experience to me. Someone who is in kinship care or who is in care of uh, cross-cultural foster care placement, they will have such a different experience to me and um, will have experienced the different flaws of the system, different imperfections, but then will have benefited from other parts of the system that have been improving so much. You are now a mother of two small humans. Yes. How does your experience growing up influence the way you parent your kids? I am extraordinarily mindful that I never, ever want to be angry at my children. (laughs) That's tough. (laughs) And it like, you know, I think partly it's just, you know, remembering my own experience of childhood, but a big part of it is... uh, me just thinking if I just take an extra five minutes to say, oh, I know you wanted a cookie. It's really tough because you already had a cookie and you can't have another cookie. It's really tough. That's that really you wanted difficult. Your sandwich cut yeah. as triangles and I did squares. I did squares. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> it's all right. Let's take a deep breath. Let's have a little hug. It's okay. Tomorrow we can have triangles for sandwiches. <laughs> you know, I know, I know that it takes like an, it makes everything takes an extra five minutes, but um, the way that I teach foster, foster carers now to handle these big feelings that children have that come out with these massive, uh, we call them challenging behaviours, but I like to call them coping behaviours. We have children who might smear feces across the walls, they might hoard food, they might yell, scream, they might throw chairs, they might run away, they might threaten to kill themselves. So many of these difficult and challenging behaviours are really just coping behaviours. And the little cub in my story roars on instinct because his brain doesn't feel safe. And that's sort of what I want to highlight is that children don't behave this way with this intent to upset adults for fun, they are behaving this way because they're trying to have enough power in a situation where they're powerless in order to feel safe in that situation. And so it comes out in these coping strategies and the only way that we can help children through that is to help them to feel safe as possible. And that means, you know, time in close to us instead of time out being rejected in a in a stair in a stairway somewhere so I think that's a huge way that it has changed the way that I look after children as a youth worker but also as a parent even though my children don't have any attachment disorders or anything like that it's still something that I'm um, extremely mindful of just because uh, I suppose I care about them so much 
And then I think that the other thing is that I am recording everything all the time. I'm always making sure I've got photos from different parts of their lives and kind of keeping the highlights real sort of somewhere safe for them. It's another thing that um, foster children usually don't get to enjoy. They don't get a good snapshot of what their life story has been because when they move around, teddy bears, dolls and things like that often get lost. Um, And also they just don't have adults around to say, oh, when you were two, you used to do this, you used to do that. I remember when we went to Luna Park for the first time and you know, because often we don't have adults in our lives to be able to remind us all of all of those things, you know, your memory of what your life story is gets very distorted. So even as I tell you this about, you know, my experience of my first refuge, I'm thinking, now, was I 12 or was I 13? <laughs> you know, was and where was I living? If, if I was 12, where was I living when I was 13? I really can't remember. I can't remember the order of the high schools that I went to and I can't remember any of my favourite teachers because I had them for such a short amount of time, you know? Mm. So uh, that's the other thing is that I try and keep a summary of my children's entire lifetime so far um, somewhere handy, backed up on the cloud. (laughs) Backed up on the cloud. That's (laughs) the key. Billy, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. That's Billy Black. She's an artist and author of Raw. And Raw is one of Kindling Kids Radio's Story of the Week. And I'll put links in the notes for where you can have a listen and also where you can get the book. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love. If you did, please rate, review or favourite. That way you'll get all the new episodes plus we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, email me at feedplaylove at listener.com. Bye for now.